my concern during this time is that seniors are being mostly portrayed uh, as weak and frail and vulnerable and uh, basically waiting to pass. I think the story of our beautiful seniors is much more and bigger and more glorious uh, to show and portray this beautiful golden generation. Today on Context, our largest urban centers have shown us we are facing a crisis of long-term care for seniors and COVID-19 has been the terrible pandemic which showed just how dire some long-term care homes are in our big cities. We all stand on the shoulders of those marvelous seniors that built this country. And to find that in a pandemic, that the places that need our help most are going understaffed. It's a crisis you'll hear about today, but first to the most tranquil rural area of Canada and the most shocking of mass shootings. We are a country that stands united in our effort to defeat a pandemic, to save lives, and to help each other make it to a better day. But yesterday, we were jolted from that common cause by the senseless violence and tragedy in Nova Scotia. Today is a devastating day for Nova Scotia, and it will remain etched in the minds of many for years to come. When stuff like this happens, we got to rally together as people and loved ones in the community and just show everybody that, you know, bad things happen, but we're still good people out there, right? It is the deadliest mass shooting in the history of our country. Police report the death toll has risen to 19 people as of this recording. People murdered in Nova Scotia by a gunman who opened fire over several hours. The death toll includes RCMP Constable Heidi Stevenson, a wife and mother of two young children, so many others grieving for this great loss of life. I asked Archbishop Anthony Mancini of Halifax, Yarmouth, his words for us at this time. Well, to one and all, I want to uh, offer and express uh, personal uh, condolences uh, to all those who have been affected, particularly uh, to the RCMP officer who uh, died in the uh, line of duty, uh, to all of her fellow uh, officers who continue to work hard uh, at uh, protecting us. Uh, this came as, uh, as, as, a, as a shock that uh, came upon us as we are struggling through uh, another kind of uh, shock. Uh, so Easter this year has been uh, a, very, uh, a very unusual and very difficult experience for uh, those of us uh, uh, caught up with the reality of trying to deal with life and death issues. And uh, of course, the message that has been on my mind uh, for quite some weeks now is uh, to be a message of hope, to be a message of hope to all who are struggling with these unprecedented times. And here we are uh, now living in the, uh, in the reality of uh, the worst mass killings in Canadian history and it's happening, and it has happened here in Nova Scotia. So uh, the, the shock is just absolutely amazing, and I want to wish everyone, uh, in spite of it all, uh, the, the hope that comes from our faith in uh, Jesus Christ. 
what would God have us do next after such a tragedy like this? Pray for one another and uh, to provide all of the possible care that we can to those who are grieving. Uh, as Christians, our primary reason for even existing is that we have a belief that stares death in the face. Uh, it is the heart of the Christian message that life is changed, not ended, uh, through death. And so caring for one another in whatever way we can, given the limitations and restrictions that are upon us because of the COVID-19, uh, caring for one another becomes more difficult at this time, but it's not impossible. And so I would, uh, I would say that God would expect us to provide encouragement, uh, consolation, uh, and support through whatever means we can use to communicate uh, our grief, but also our sense of uh, conviction that life, in spite of everything, is greater than that. Father, what would you say um, in closing for a, for a consolation to your community? Well, we are here. We pray with you. Uh, we are concerned for all those who have been hurt and who will be grieving for a long time. And so I offer to one and all the consolation of our faith and our uh, solidarity in this particular time. Archbishop Anthony Messini of Nova Scotia, thank you so much. Thank you for asking. we hear the crisis that COVID-19 has caused in long-term care seniors' homes and from those working for a solution. And now to the other crisis we're going to feature on today's show, but sadly, this one has been long in the making. In the densely populated areas of Canada, seniors' homes have been finding that they are vastly understaffed and ill-equipped for the pandemic. These homes were not ready for the battle against COVID-19, and it's been long-term care, not hospitals, that have been the epicenter of Canada's outbreak. Looking for answers, I spoke with Dr. Samir Sinha. He's an advisor on long-term care to government and the director of geriatrics at Sinai Health System. You shocked me in the beginning of this pandemic when you said if you had your own parents in senior care, long-term care in Ontario, you would pull them out now. Would you still do that? 
I'll be honest right now, um, I'm really concerned about the state of long-term care right now. And uh, at the time uh, I had started sounding the alarm when there were only a handful of homes in Ontario in outbreak. Um, we're now about 150 or close to 200 homes that are now in outbreak across Ontario. Um, and I've been working very closely with the Minister of Long-Term Care, Dr. Fullerton, um, and the government to try and help the government stay um, or keep up, if you will, with the science and the evidence that actually says this is what we need to be doing um, to best support uh, people in long-term care and prevent this virus from getting in and spreading you know, within homes. But right now we're not winning the battle. Um, right now we're uh, um, right now we know that more homes are continually going into outbreak and people are dying. Um, and so when I actually, you know, if you, Lorna, asked me, you know, as a respected journalist, like, what would you do? People ask me this question all the time, you know, as a doctor, what would you do if this is your family member? I'd say that if you had the ability and, and, and could care for a loved one at home, um, you know, with other supports, you know, then this is something that you may want to consider. And and I'll tell you, many families have actually been doing this in Ontario, and it's why the government in Ontario actually changed its regulations a number of weeks ago to support families who wanted to actually do this and who could. The key issue so is, Lorna, yeah. The, what is, like, because there are some bottom line things you need to have to be able to take a loved one home. Oh, absolutely. And I think, and I think the key issue, Lorna, is, you know, let's be realistic here. Um, and many of my families, you know, who've actually made the difficult decision by having their loved ones go into care, they didn't do this issue glibly. Um, these individuals need an incredible amount of care beyond in those situations, what the family could actually provide and what they could do. And so for many families right now, they are agonizing right now in Ontario and beyond because they're saying, you know, my mom's home isn't an outbreak, but maybe it'll be next. Um, and maybe she'll be at risk of death. And I feel enormously guilty that my loved one's in care and I feel like I can't visit them. Um, I can't do anything more for them. I just, am I supposed to sit here and wait? Um, and that's why my number one focus right now is saying, how do we at least make these homes as safe as possible? What can we do to protect people in these homes? But for those families, for example, who say, and I have, we have many families who are saying right now, right now I'm not employed. Right now the kids are home from university and it's killing us that we can't see our loved one. And you know what? Up until a few months ago or a few years ago, we were doing all the care 24 seven with limited government supports and everything else available. And we actually could do this now. So these are highly personalized decisions. And so one of the things that I've done is to support families across Ontario and beyond in this need is partnered with the, um, the University of Ottawa's hospitals, um, their Health Research Institute, so Dr. Stacy Dawn there. And we've actually created decision aids for families who are grappling with this decision. And so if you go to decision aid and, and type in Ottawa, if you type in those three words. We'll put that link. We'll put that link put that, right exactly. on the show And if here. you put that in, exactly, thank you. And if we actually do that, this is how families can go through and figure out what's right for them because these are not easy decisions and not every family is gonna be able to make this decision. But what we're saying is for those families who want to, the government has actually made it easy for ones to take their loved ones out of care, not be penalized when it's time to return them to care. I have my colleagues right now who are saying, I'm happy to go in and feed people if that's what they need. I know that I'm a doctor who could do much more highly skilled work, but frankly right now, 
it doesn't matter if you have two hands and a brain, you know, right now, this is the level of care in which we're just trying to connect people and residents with, um, because that's what the homes are asking for. Take care there on the front line. Take care, sir. Thank you very much, Lorna. Okay, so from Dr. Sinha on those crisis lines, of course, that makes me think of my mother in long-term care, and you're probably thinking of your parents. My mother is 91, and she lives in British Columbia's largest seniors facility, Menno Place. They have 700 beds, 650 staff, and as a daughter, one of the staff that I really treasure there is the chaplain, Ingrid Schultz, and she joins us now. Tell us about this devotional streaming, these chaplain services that you are streaming into their, into their rooms. Every single morning of weekday morning from Monday to Friday, we stream prayers from the Menno Hospital Chapel. And that goes into all of the rooms of the 350 residents in the apartments or assisted living and into all the long-term care rooms and lounges at Mental Home and Mental Hospital. Um, the Tuesday prayer time is the staff prayer, which we've always had every Tuesday morning at nine, but now the whole campus watches it as that camera is on us as we gather to pray. And, and I think that gives a sense that we're taking all the steps that we need to take to physically distance, but we're not spiritually distancing. We are, are connected and our, our person who tracks who all is watching saying, more people are watching the chaplain programs than ever. And you have been doing, um, uh, they're really like Skype in love-ins, right? Like I could call in and, and then you read it to you, you, you as a team, you gown up and you go to the door of, of our family members and you, you read this to them. Tell us the impact of being able to bring greetings from children who we can't get in. And, and Lorna, as you can imagine, one of the most difficult things for the residents and for their families is that they can't come in to visit now. And so one of our staff, Sharon Simpson, who's with communications, came up with the idea of messages of love where family members can send messages, but also color pictures of themselves that they that get printed out. And several times a week as these come in, we take them to the residents, the recreation staff helped with this, the chaplains help. We deliver that message. We stand outside the door. We're wearing our mask and our goggles. We don't go into the room, but we read that message. We, we, show that picture and then we give that for them to keep but it gives such a sense of of being connected what about the spiritual care of the workers because as we speak as i said no no outbreak not one covid death yes. yet you have the same frontline tensions of every other home in this country how, how are they doing those 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 the nurses and the and the orderlies Yes, it's, it's been a challenging time for all the staff and we're hearing about people having trouble sleeping at night. Um, I can relate to that in these days, even as I'm wanting to trust God in that. And a lot of us are experiencing something that's called ambiguous grief. We're grieving already. 
and and we don't know why we're feeling that sadness why is it hard sleeping why we know there's anxiety but behind that is grief we've lost our our routines so as we're aware of that as chaplains we can address that grieving that's happened and ask people how they're doing to be and encourage them to be gentle with themselves to be aware that they're in a time of grieving even if they can't name it as grief ingrid how important is the spiritual care um, of a person in long-term care at a time like this i i feel that it's at the center and it's it always has been that for for mental place that as our our physical ability diminishes our our longing for connection with god and others expands that's something i learned right at the start of becoming a chaplain to elders and so to be able to address that need that longing for connection and when things are accelerated with the fears that come around covid 19 the longing to know that that god is with us that god remembers us that, that we're not abandoned ingrid thank you for reminding us of that uh, you are also streaming all the local church services into my mom's room and everybody's rooms he's gone to more church thank you for the wonderful work that you guys are doing there in abbotsford british columbia at the meadow home thank you In facing the national crisis on senior care for COVID, the Métis National Council took a different approach. Here's Vice President of the National Council, David Chartrand. On all of our culture, you take care of your elders first, no matter what. And so our, our campaign immediately was that when we looked at COVID, for example, we, we knew the world was telling us and countries were telling us the hardest hit were the seniors, the elders. If they were to get captured in, under the COVID virus, the likelihood of that many of them chances are they may die uh, so the record was not yet showing the young people or middle age was definitely focused on which for us was an issue anyway because we would be protecting our elders no matter what our seniors would be priority number one for us to make sure we put protections in place and programs in service. so if we want them to stay home we want them to stay in isolation and we expect them to stay there then we needed to put a campaign together which we bought the resources essentials foods and all the rest of the supplies there 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 many have chronic illnesses quite large chronic illness and so we had to make sure their prescriptions were delivered right to their houses so we put a massive campaign right across the province and we started immediately now we actually do a phone follow-up campaign we're doing our second uh, now tranche of essentials and foods uh, to them because over two weeks have gone by and now we're doing a second round for, for quite a number of thousands of them how have the Métis been able to keep your people out of these long-term care placements? Well, it's, it's again, it goes back and no different. Even, for example, my mother passed away. Uh, one of the things my mom said to me, never put me in there, and I never would, uh, never allow it. Uh, it's a lot of our, a lot of our citizens uh, actually are kept because of family. They're kept in the culture. They're kept at home. Uh, and that is a significant aspect of our culture that ensures that our families it's our duty, it's our responsibility. They raised us, they, they took care of us, they put us to where we are. It's our job not to take care of them. So many of them, uh, of course, don't go in personal care homes. Uh, we, we used to call it granny shacks. We'd had we'd had onto our houses to have a place for them to stay, so they stay with the children. Uh, the only time we'd be forced to, if it was an health issue, which we needed, of course, medical uh, staff to take care of it. Otherwise, 
most of our families keep their parents at home. Wow. And now uh, you are mobilizing to actually make emergency barracks should your people be affected. You've re refitted the construction outfits. Tell us about this campaign. Well, there are several fronts we had to look at, and this is uh, three months in, in the works. Like before, when we heard about it already uh, out in China, we already started talking about our making cabinet and our own government. We started saying, what if this thing comes our way? What are we going to be doing? So we looked at our resources, looked at what we had in front of us, and we decided to say, like, we have some tools. We don't have many, but we have some. If we're wise with it, we can definitely make a big impact. But we did a quick analysis too in the stats that just came out from Statistics Canada. Shows again, Métis are struggling in the housing sectors, overcrowding, uh, not enough uh, rooms in the house. So then you're expecting these people to stay isolated if anybody gets affected or something occurs, you're expecting people, then you go into an isolation in your house. How can you when there's 10 of you in a two bedroom house? How do you, where do you go to get isolated? So what we end up doing is actually buying, which is called tiny homes, they're isolation units. We bought them from British Columbia. We had five of them and we're ready to move mobile or anywhere in the province. And so if any community is affected, we're ready to move five of them in that community immediately to take the person out of the house, put them in isolation. But we said to ourselves, what if it gets bigger? What if it blows up like we see in Quebec right now? And what if it happens in our personal care homes? You see it blowing up. So you said, what happens in one of our villages? Because we don't have health centers. We don't have clinics as Métis people. We don't have any health staff as Métis people because we're caught in a jurisdictional limbo. Who's responsible? Is it the federal government responsible for the Métis, which the Daniel said in 2015 Supreme Court decision, or is it the province? So we said to ourselves, we need our own plan. So we looked at our construction camps and we said, look, here's an opportunity. We own three camps that we did because we have run a lot of businesses. Uh, we're very business people, strong business people. And so we put together these, these camps. Now we have 140 bed facility ready to go. We are completely ready for a uh, pandemic explosion that we can move and quarantine our, our citizens. But this is what we've done. This is the capture of our Métis government. We said it's not just for us. If it doesn't affect us, then we need to help Manitobans. We need to help other communities. We need to help other citizens. And, and if the province wants to partner with us, then we'll partner. But if they don't want to partner with us, we're still willing to help anyone, First Nations, non-Indigenous people. If there's, a, if there's an impact in their villages, we're willing to use our new, our three, three camps ready, uh, ready to take action and bring them in there and fully equipped with gymnasiums. It's got, a, it's, got a, it's got TV, it's got computers, it's got food, it's got kitchens, it's got everything. So we're okay. ready to do it. David Chartrand, thank you for, for inspiring us. Thank you very much, Laura. Coming up, a Coptic priest who specializes in family and cultural issues has some advice for how we can do better. Let's get some good advice for senior care. I spoke with Father Pishoy Salama. He's a cultural and family specialist from St. Maurice and St. Verena Coptic Orthodox Church. My concern during this time is that seniors are being mostly portrayed uh, as weak and frail and vulnerable and uh, basically waiting to pass. The images that dominate the media are those of long-term uh, seniors' homes and uh, those who have been impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. But I think the story of our beautiful seniors is much more and bigger and more glorious uh, to show and portray this beautiful golden generation. 
How do we do that? What are we missing? I think we uh, need to acknowledge the impact that this amazing generation has had on our culture, on our families, our homes, and um, there's so much that they have offered um, to us as, as Canadians uh, that we need to acknowledge and highlight, especially during this time. Like, how do you break through? The messages are so bleak. We are so appalled at what feels like almost a warehousing of them as we realize the staffing frontline crisis around them. How do we break through? And every one of us has been impacted by uh, a senior and an elder. Um, the closest example to my mind uh, would be my own parents. Uh, they've been married for 55 years. Um, my father is turning 80 in just a couple of months. I'm not even going to mention how old is my, my mother because I'll be in trouble. Uh, but they're living independently. They're still contributing uh, to the community of faith. Uh, they're still uh, working in, in their uh, family business. And um, they're just a, a great example for, for me personally. And this is not just an isolated story. Uh, I meet so many seniors who are still mobile, who are uh, volunteering, who are helping, who are inspiring the next generations uh, to live faithfully, but also to care for others. So how would we reset the clock? Like as you look at, and let's call it the chaos it has been, as people try to figure out how do we properly uh, reshape and restaff the crisis lines, what would be your advice for families trying to help? I think we have to acknowledge that um, this pandemic has impacted mostly our seniors, so we have to continue uh, caring for them. And I'd like to encourage everyone to call uh, one of their beloved seniors to, to check up on them. Uh, but not every senior is in a long-term um, home. There are many uh, seniors, uh, you know, who are junior seniors, if we can call them, uh, those who are still mobile, who uh, can do so much to, to serve or to minister to, to other seniors. I think more stories in, in the media that shows um, the history, but also um, how amazing it is to, to be with uh, seniors who are living at home or independently, um, how they're inspiring next generations. Like uh, my own children have been impacted by, by my parents. Uh, we have to continue highlighting um, the values and, and the, the strengths and uh, all the beautiful gifts that God has given to this beautiful generation. All right. Father Pishoy Salama, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Well, as we close another of our COVID specials, uh, so many people to thank that are busy doing their best in this. We always end with a thank you to our wardrobe sponsor, Frida. She's busy sewing masks in this time. Thank you, Frida, for that. And of course, thank you to everyone who's caring, especially for our seniors in those long-term care homes. And uh, we end with thinking of those wonderful seniors and how they shaped our own lives and shaped this country.